Hello, I'm R.A. Spratt. I write and perform this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, I'm a children's author, so you can buy a book by me, or you can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. It's an easy way to make a small thank you gift to the show so I can keep kicking this can down the road. The podcast directory you're using right now should have a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page in the show notes, or you can type it into your browser. That's buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. All contributions are gratefully appreciated. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories with me, R.A. Spratt. Well, I'm back home in my office. You can probably hear the pitter-patter of rain on my skylight above me. It's been raining here for about the last three days, so there's no point in me waiting for it to stop raining to record this because I have to drop this episode at six o'clock tomorrow morning, so I've just got to record it now regardless of the rain. But I actually think rain is quite a nice sound, so um, I'm not too worried about that. All right, so today's story, I said I was going to do a Greek myth, and indeed I have written a Greek myth. Uh, you might remember not that long ago I did the story of Hades and Persephone. I hadn't actually intended to do that story. I had been intended to do the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, because when I was at school, when I was in primary school, my brother's high school did the musical of Orpheus and the Underworld, and it really sort of captured my imagination. So, you know, a few months back, I thought, oh, I'll do the story of Orpheus for the, the podcast. But when I was researching it, I found out all about the story of Hades and Persephone, and they sort of like join up with each other. So, well, or they overlap a little bit because they got the same characters. So I did uh, Hades and Persephone first for the podcast, and then because because I have the short-term memory of a goldfish. In my mind, I thought I had done the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, so I continued on my cheerful way, and then someone said to me, Hey, R.A. Spratt, can you please do the story of Orpheus and Eurydice? And I was just about to write back to them that they were very foolish and that I'd done it already, when I realized I hadn't done it already. I was, in fact, the foolish one. So I did it this week. Uh, this weekend, I wrote it, and now I'm going to record it for you. And I hope you like the story, because as I say, when I was about 10 years old, I found it fascinating. So here we go. This is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, as told by Nanny Piggins. When Derek, Samantha and Michael returned home from school, they were very surprised to discover a 60-piece orchestra tuning up in their front garden. Apart from anything else, theirs was not a large front garden, so a lot of squishing was required. The first violin was resting his music on the letterbox. The flute section had had to take their shoes and socks off because their seats were in the fish pond, and the grand piano was doing irreparable damage to the rose bushes it had been placed on top of. But these musicians were professionals and seriously focused on their work. They behaved as if it was perfectly normal to bring together 60 symphonic musicians on a suburban street. To be fair, the orchestra was not actually the most dramatic thing in this tableau, because standing at the front, there was a large man with dark, slicked-back hair, and he was dressed in a black tailcoat and white bow tie, and he was doing very elaborate vocal exercises as he warmed up his voice. Mame, mami, mamo, mo, pape, papi, papapo, da, de, da, di, da, da, do. The musicians were so focused on their work, no one said anything to the children as they wove their way between music stands to get to their own front door and let themselves into the house. 
When they finally got inside, Derek, Samantha and Michael found their nanny in the kitchen preparing their afternoon tea. Um, Nanny Piggins, said Derek, do you know that there's a full symphony orchestra at the front of the house? Ugh! Oh, yes, said Nanny Piggins. Why? asked Michael. Because some men are not very good at accepting disappointment, said Nanny Piggins. While this was most likely true, the children could not follow how this would lead to the presence of an orchestra at their home. You're going to have to explain, said Samantha. It's nothing for you to worry about. It's just that the most famous opera singer in the entire world has fallen madly in love with me, explained Nanny Piggins. You mean that man with all the hair royal and dressed up like a penguin, asked Michael. Yes, that's the one, said Nanny Piggins. Well, how did that happen, asked Derek. Obviously, it makes total sense that a man would fall in love with you. After all, it does happen all the time, added Samantha. But how did you meet him, asked Derek. Did you go to the opera without us, asked Michael. Now, Michael did not want to go to the opera. He was seven years old, and to him, opera singing sounded like cats caterwauling, only less fun because everyone loves cuddling a cat. But he still was a little hurt at the idea of their nanny doing something without them. She normally did everything with them, even things they'd rather not be there for, like yelling at librarians or resisting arrest when the police are called because she has disturbed the peace at the library. Oh, goodness, no, said Nanny Piggins. I do like opera. It's very melodramatic. I think more people should be melodramatic. It's so much simpler just to let your feelings out as soon as you have them so they don't bottle up inside you and create toxins. But tickets to the opera are very expensive, hundreds of dollars. And as you know, when I do have hundreds of dollars, I find it physically impossible to resist spending all the money on chocolate. The children nodded. This often happened, like when their father had given Nanny Piggins money to buy their school uniforms, and when their father had given Nanny Piggins money to pay the electricity bill, and when their father hadn't given Nanny Piggins his law books, but she'd found them and sold them on eBay anyway. No, it was total coincidence we met. I popped down to the supermarket to get some healthy ingredients for your afternoon tea, said Nanny Piggins. Chocolate, guessed Michael. Why, yes, it was, said Nanny Piggins. I'm making trifle, and chocolate is an essential ingredient in trifle. Really, said Samantha. I didn't know that there was any chocolate in trifle. There is if you do it right, said Nanny Piggins. Once you throw out the fruit layer, there's lots of room for a good, nutritious chocolate layer. Anyway, there was only one large jumbo extended family-sized block of chocolate left on the shelf, explained Nanny Piggins. I reached for it, knowing it would be just the thing. I wouldn't even need to break it up. I could just lay it in the middle of the trifle as one supported block, like the concrete foundations of a building. A block like that could be weight-bearing, which would allow me to construct even more chocolate above. But as I grabbed hold of the packaging in my hand, another hand grabbed the block from the other side. That's mine, said a voice. As I spun around to wallop him with my handbag, I looked into his eyes. Oh, no, said Derek. Whenever Nanny Piggins looked directly into a man's eyes, he almost always fell in love with her. I'm afraid so. In that moment, I could see the total and complete love at first sight had flooded over him. And what does that look like? asked Samantha curiously. Well, imagine the look on a man's face that he would get if he'd just been hit by a cement truck, said Nanny Piggins. Well, wouldn't he be dead, said Michael. Please don't try and apply reality and physics to my anecdote, said Nanny Piggins. You know I hate it when you try to project reasoning onto my lifestyle. I'm sorry, Nanny Piggins, said Michael.
I'm just telling you, in that second, I knew he was spellbound, said Nanny Piggins. Fortunately, in the next second, my handbag made contact with the side of his head. And I did have several large cookbooks in there that I had decided not to return to the library, so it made quite a blow. He was so stunned, both from the love and the head injury, that he relaxed his grip on the chocolate bar. I snatched it away and ran to the checkouts to escape with it before he came to his senses. Or the concussion died down. So... Why is there an orchestra in the front yard, asked Derek. Because that man was the most famous opera singer in all the world. And now he thinks he can make me fall in love with him by singing the most beautiful aria any opera singer in the history of ears has ever sung in the general direction of our house. What if it works and you fall in love with him back, asked Samantha. Oh, pish, said Nanny Piggins. I would never let a musician try that trick on me. I've got these. Nanny Piggins pulled out two very old-looking, lumpy, lint-covered marshmallows from her pocket. All Piggins women always carry two marshmallows with them at all times, for precisely this eventuality, so we can plug them in our ears if a singer tries to make us fall in love with them with song. Really? said Michael. Oh, yes, said Nanny Piggins. We've been doing it for 3,000 years. Ever since my dear great-great-great-great times 171 greats, cousin Eurydice Piggins had an unfortunate marriage with a liar player. What went wrong? asked Samantha. Well, she dropped dead, said Nanny Piggins. That's terrible, said Samantha. If that was all that happened, it wouldn't have been too bad, said Nanny Piggins. It was the ancient Greek story day, so people were dropping dead all the time. But for my poor cousin Eurydice, dropping dead was just the beginning of the story. Well, you'd better tell us the whole thing from the beginning, said Derek. All right, I will, said Nanny Piggins. Help yourselves to triple servings of trifle before I begin, so you have something to sustain you while I tell my tale. And so, once their snacks were assembled, the children gathered around Nanny Piggins at the kitchen table, and she told them the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Hey parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. As I say, it all happened thousands of years ago, in the ancient Greek story days. Not much is known about my cousin Eurydice's childhood. People tend to focus on all the true love and death that came after her marriage. But we do know that she was a nymph. Oh dear, said Samantha. Is Zeus involved in this? He was always chasing after nymphs, wasn't he? Yes, he was, because nymphs are all staggeringly beautiful. And Eurydice was both a nymph and a piggins, so she had a double dose of extreme beauty. So we can only imagine how staggeringly, blindingly attractive she must have been. Well, she must have looked like you, said Michael. Oh, well done, Michael, said Nanny Piggins. That was an excellent compliment. Thank you. Compliment giving is such an important skill that so few men master. They really should teach it at school. You'd get an A-plus with talent like that, Michael blushed. Anyway, Eurydice was walking around being breathtakingly beautiful and trying to get on with her day-to-day life when Orpheus spotted her. 
Who was Orpheus? asked Samantha. Well, think of the most famous, most popular pop star in the world today, said Nanny Piggins. The type of pop star that girls swoon over and whose songs are played so constantly on the radio everyone feels like they're being brainwashed. Well, that was who Orpheus was. He was the biggest musical pop sensation of the ancient Greek story days. Everyone loved his music. They loved to hear him sing. They loved to listen to him play the lyre. People couldn't get enough of him. Even the big macho heroes of Greek mythology would bring Orpheus on their epic journeys so he could play music and inspire the men. You see, stereos had not been invented yet, so they needed something to listen to. In fact, Orpheus was so good at playing music, he could charm birds from the sky. He could charm fish from the sea, and he could even charm wild beasts so they would brutally stop killing each other for a few minutes just to listen to him play. So anyway, everything was going along swimmingly for Orpheus until one day when he was struck by a thunderbolt. Not from Zeus, asked Samantha. No, not literally a thunderbolt, said Nanny Piggins. Not an electrostatic discharge in the sky caused by a storm. No, Orpheus was struck by something even more dangerous than lightning. He was struck with a thunderbolt of love. Ouch, said Michael. Exactly, said Nanny Piggins. He was walking through the woods, humming a pretty tune to himself, when he saw the face of my cousin, Eurydice and it was total and utter love at first sight. He ran straight over, dropped to his knees, and proposed to her on the spot. Really, said Derek? Don't judge him. You've never fallen in love with a magically beautiful wood nymph. It sounds nice in storybooks, but in practice, it has the same effect on the human brain as having a heavy steel anvil drop on your head. Now, Eurydice had spent her whole life being beautiful, so this sort of thing happened to her all the time. It was very wearisome. Please, please, you must marry me, said Orpheus, for I am desperately in love with you. I want to spend every moment of the rest of my entire life right by your side. No, thank you, said Eurydice. That does not sound pleasant at all. Even if I was totally in love with someone, I think I'd still like to have a little time to myself now and then. And I'm not in love with you, because we've only just met, and I'm not impressed with what I've seen so far. But I am the son of the god Apollo, and I'm really good-looking too, said Orpheus. I suppose so, said Eurydice, eyeing Orpheus critically. But I think if I did get married, I'd prefer to marry someone who was a bit less good-looking and a great deal more sensible. Orpheus was going mad with despair. He couldn't stand it if Eurydice refused to be his wife. But just then he remembered something. He remembered he was the best musician and singer in the entire world. He could charm birds, fish and wild beasts with his songs. So surely he could charm Eurydice too. Wait, 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 wait. Listen to this and see if you still refuse me, said Orpheus, with which he launched into song. Orpheus sang, and he plucked his lyre as he had never sung nor plucked before. He'd always made beautiful music, but the music he played in the forest that day was the most beautiful music ever played on earth before or since. Eurydice politely stood and listened. No one had ever played her a song before, and she liked it. She liked it a lot. When he reached the end of his song, Orpheus looked into her eyes and asked, What do you say now? I say... Play me another one, said Eurydice. But what about my proposal? complained Orpheus. If you love me, you'll play me another song, said Eurydice. And so he did. 
Orpheus played and played, and Eurydice kept calling out different songs for him to play. She stayed and listened to him for hours. Eventually, Orpheus's fingers were bleeding and his voice was strained, but somewhere along the way, Eurydice had fallen in love with him. She was hit in the head with the anvil of love too, asked Samantha. I think it was more that she was pleasantly cocooned in the warm doona of love, said Nanny Piggins. But love is love. It comes to us all in different ways. And Eurydice had certainly taken a shine to him. All right, I agree, said Eurydice. To what? asked Orpheus. To marry you, said Eurydice. Spotify hasn't been invented yet. I think having you about the house will be the next best thing. I'm not so sure now, said Orpheus, looking at his sore fingers. Really, said Eurydice. Well, fair enough. It's been a lovely afternoon listening to your music. Let's just have one kiss farewell and we'll never see each other again. With which she leaned in and kissed Orpheus. It was only a small kiss, but it turns out that Eurydice was as good at kissing as Orpheus was at playing the lyre. So again, poor Orpheus was hit in the head with the anvil of love. And Orpheus was good at kissing too. He was the son of Apollo, and the gods were forever giving their children secret powers. So Eurydice got a bit of a bump from the anvil of love herself. And so the wedding was scheduled for that very afternoon. Wow, said Michael, they didn't mess around. Don't people usually have engagements that go for a couple of months? Sometimes years. Yes, said Samantha, so they've got time to plan the amazing wedding. Well, wood nymphs never do that, said Nanny Piggins, because they never know when some other man's going to come along and kidnap them. They like to get on with things. So anyway, for the wedding of Orpheus and Eurydice, all the other nymphs and all the gods from Olympus came to the ceremony, and they were married in the very forest where they met. Everyone was so happy. Orpheus played and sang. Eurydice and the other wood nymphs danced around the glen. It was the most wonderful party ever. Everyone was having so much fun, and love was in the air. But as you know, some people don't enjoy listening to the joy of others. And deep inside his burrow, there was a snake, and he was trying to get some sleep. But he couldn't, because of all the music and the pounding feet above. So he popped his head out of the ground to see what was going on. And as he did, a foot trod down on him. Now the snake's mouth was open. He'd been about to say, Would you mind keeping the noise down? Some of us are trying to sleep. When Eurydice's dancing foot was jammed into his open mouth, the snake's venom gushed through his fangs into her foot and she dropped dead right then and there. What in the middle of her own wedding reception, said Michael. That's awful, said Samantha. Yes, and the greatest tragedy of all was... Danny Piggins struggled to hold back her own tears here. Eurydice hadn't even had a slice of her own wedding cake yet. Anyway, Orpheus was distraught. He wept and wailed and wept and wailed. He wept and wailed all the way through her funeral and on and on for several weeks. But eventually, amongst all that weeping and wailing and despairing, Orpheus had an idea. Since he could not live without Eurydice, there was only one thing he could do. Please say he doesn't die too, said Samantha. Oh no, said Nanny Piggins. Orpheus had a much better idea than that. He decided he would just go to the afterlife and fetch Eurydice back. Can you do that, asked Michael. Well, you shouldn't be able to, said Nanny Piggins. But Orpheus was the son of a god. And as we know, the children of gods don't think the rules apply to them. Orpheus journeyed down into the underworld, a place from which few people have ever returned. Your great aunt Sisyphus did, Derek reminded her. Yes, but not for long. Zeus soon sent her back again. So no one really knows what the underworld is like. 
but we can assume it's horrible and miserable and there's very poor interior decoration because it is the place wicked people are sent to be punished. So when the gods set it up, they went out of their way to make everything in the underworld absolutely horrid. It smells bad, the lighting is bad, and worst of all, wherever you go in the underworld, you can never ever get away from the sound of someone playing the bagpipes. Oh, oh no, said the children. So as Orpheus walked deeper and deeper into the earth and closer and closer to this horrible place, he was terribly frightened. But he so wanted to be reunited with his wife that he bravely kept going until he came to the river Styx. The boatman held out his hand for payment and Orpheus realised he'd left his wallet up in the world. The boatman groaned, Ugh! Why is it that everyone who comes down here are such cheapskates? I'll tell you what, said Orpheus, instead of payment, how about I play you a song? The boatman wanted to say no, but lyre music might drown out the constant sound of bagpipes, so he agreed, and Orpheus sang him a song as they crossed the river. Everything was going well for Orpheus. He was pleased with his progress, until he came face to face with Cerebus, the massive three-headed dog that guards the entrance to the other world. Cerebus lunged at Orpheus, all three of his giant heads barking and gnashing their teeth, great globs of drool hanging from all six of his jowls. Orpheus was terrified. At first he panicked, but then he remembered he was the most gifted musician on the planet and he could charm wild beasts. So Orpheus began to play. As soon as Cerebus heard the lyre, he skidded to a halt. Then Orpheus started to sing, and Cerebus stopped barking and gnashing. Then Orpheus started to sing a lullaby, and soon Cerebus fell into a deep and contented sleep. So Orpheus was able to enter into the underworld and walk right into the royal throne room, where the king of the underworld, Hades himself, was sitting on a throne next to his wife, Persephone. Oh, look, husband, said Persephone, perking up. We have a visitor. Oh, it's probably just someone come to try and get us to change our broadband plan, grumbled Hades. Oh, no, I think it's a musician, said Persephone. Look, he's got a lyre. Oh, even worse, a door-to-door musician, complained Hades. I haven't heard music in ages, said Persephone. Not since I lived up in the world. I've never ever heard music at all, said Hades. Being dead tends to put most people around here off singing. Would you like me to play a song for you, asked Orpheus. No, said Hades. Yes, said Persephone, both speaking at the same time. Persephone glared at her husband. He rolled his eyes. He knew he was the luckiest god alive to have found such a lovely wife, especially considering that he lived underground and as such could never take her out on a dinner date. Hades loved Persephone so much he'd never deny her anything. Oh, fine, grumbled Hades. All I ask in exchange, said Orpheus, is that if you like my song, that you will allow my wife, Eurydice, to return with me to the land of the living. Oh, that's a big ask, said Hades. It is indeed, said Orpheus. But Hades was extremely confident no song could be good enough to persuade him to break the fundamental rules of the gods, and he really wanted to make Persephone happy, so he agreed. Get on with it then, and we'll see how good you really are. And so Orpheus played. He'd made Eurydice fall in love with him by playing music of pure magical beauty. But now, in the underworld, 
Orpheus touched Hades' soul by playing music of heart-wrenching sadness. It reminded Hades of his own desperate love for Persephone and how terrible he felt every spring when she returned to Earth to spend six months amongst the living, and how grateful he was every autumn when she returned to live with him again. By the time Orpheus finished his song, tears were streaming down Hades' face. He was clutching his wife in a hug and weeping into her shoulder. I love you so much, he declared. I know, sweetheart, I love you too, agreed Persephone. Go on then, said Hades, looking up at Orpheus. Take your wife back. Oh, thank you, thank you so much, said Orpheus in delight. But be warned, said Hades. The rules that hold the dead in the underworld are strong. I can bring Eurydice forth now and allow her to follow you back to the world of the living. But you must not turn around to see if she is following you. If you glance back, even for a split second, before you reach the surface, then our agreement shall be broken and Eurydice will be locked in the afterlife forevermore. I understand, said Orpheus. Then I shall bring her forth, said Hades. He raised his arm, and a door opened, and Eurydice drifted through. She was shimmery and pale like an illusion. Love swelled in Orpheus's heart. Oh, Eurydice, my love! My husband, called Eurydice. Orpheus hurried forward. Stop, called Hades. You may not touch her, or she will vanish. Eurydice is ephemeral now, but once she steps out into the sunlight of the world... She will return to human form. Orpheus so wanted to hug his wife, but he controlled himself. He could wait until they reached the surface. Now turn and return to your world, said Hades. Orpheus turned away from Eurydice, and immediately his heart hurt to look away from her. May I play a song for my wife as we walk? As you wish, said Hades. So Orpheus raised his lyre, And as he stepped forward to begin his return journey, he began to play, trying to reassure his wife and himself with his song of love. It was a long journey back, past the sleeping three-headed dog, across the river Styx with the grumpy boatman, and up the long tunnel to the world of the living. And as Orpheus walked, he started to doubt himself. You see, he could not hear Eurydice's footsteps behind him. What if she was not there? What if he'd been tricked? What if he was walking too fast and she stopped to have a rest and he hadn't noticed? What if she'd stopped to pat the dog? She would have had to give the dog three sets of pats, one for each head. She might have lost sight of him. Orpheus was growing more and more anxious with these worries, but he knew he must fight the urge to glance back. Eventually, after a very long time, Orpheus looked up to see a light ahead of him. It was the light at the end of the tunnel. The world of the living was just up ahead. Orpheus picked up his pace, singing and playing with joy, hoping against hope that Eurydice was right behind him. As he got closer, the brightness of the sunlight blinded him. He'd made it. As he stepped out into the light, Orpheus turned around to hug his wife. And there was Eurydice, just a few paces behind, but with a look of horror on her face. You nitwit, cried Eurydice. Hades specifically said you could not turn around until both of us were back above ground in the land of the living. Huh? said Orpheus. He looked down and realised that Eurydice was a few paces behind him. She was still within the shadows of the tunnel to the underworld. Goodbye forever, said Eurydice, 
and in an instant she was sucked back down into Hades like a gush of wind. No! cried Orpheus. The end time for bed. What? That can't be the end, said Derek. That's a dreadful story. I know, agreed Nanny Piggins, and that is why every Piggins woman from that day to this has carried two marshmallows in her pocket, so we can never be seduced by the performance of a musician, no matter how talented he is. But it's all so desperately sad, said Samantha. I know, agreed Nanny Piggins. Let that be a lesson to all of you on the importance of marshmallows. Now come along, children. You'd better put some in your ears. It sounds like Giuseppe's about to launch into song outside, and I'd hate for you to be distracted from enjoying this really delicious chocolate trifle. And that is the end of the story. The end. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one. I enjoyed researching and writing it. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>